Welcome to my podcast, Cyberglass Ceiling. I'm going to have a light-hearted fireside chat with some people who are leaders in the industry of cybersecurity. Prominent for the fact that they are a women, people of colour, LGTBQ, or just different. The term glass ceiling refers to sometimes invisible barriers to success that many come up against in their careers. A management consultant called Marilyn Loden coined the phrase almost 40 years ago regarding women rising to senior positions and says it's still as relevant as ever today. So I've taken that a little step further, not just women, but people of colour and bias that may exist in the workplace and how they overcame this to become leaders in the industry. I promise not too much swearing, no politics or religion, just a cuppa and whatever takes your fancy. Hello and welcome to my next episode of Cyberglass Ceiling. Uh, today I've got a duo with me, um, Michelle Proctor and Alison Bailey. Welcome, ladies. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, it's the first time we've had a duo. And we're in not-so-sunny Manchester today, where when I left my house it was 21 degrees and sunny and nice and warm. And um, up here it's now raining and, I don't know, it's mild, but still a bit rainy. Um, and I've got these two ladies, wonderful ladies here today, to have a discussion about uh, them and who they are and where they work. So I'm going to start with Michelle. Uh, Michelle, introduce yourself, say hello. Hiya. So I'm Michelle Proctor. Um, I'm 58 years old. I don't know if that's important. You don't, <laughs> you don't look it. It's not a dating app. <laughs> so, yeah, I've um, stopped using them, by the way. Okay, okay. I was born in Aldershot, so you can tell I'm an army, army brat. My dad was in the army and uh, spent m- most of my life either in Germany or down south and um, when my dad retired after 22 years in the army, which I think was normal, then we went back to his hometown, which was just outside of Manchester. Um, for the last 20 years, I've lived in just outside of Edinburgh, working for RBS, but now NetWest. But um, my my career uh, kind of started back from um, being straight out when, when I was actually in Manchester, straight out of school. Thank you. And Alison, um, yes. welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So uh, slightly slightly different background. Uh, I was further south than you. I was uh, South Africa, so really <laughs> south. Um, basically did a university degree there in business. Uh, it, was, it was quite a funny story. I wanted to be a psychologist. I thought this is, I love people. I like trying to understand what makes them tick. I'm going to go and do psychology. So off I went for my first day of registration and psychology clashed with computers. So it was like, oh, I'm going to have to pick one or the other. And psychology was six years if you wanted to be a, a serious one, as in you had to do your honours, your masters, and doctorate. Mm. And computers was three, so I chose computers. Um, so, so it really was a toss-up between psychology and and computers. Um, and then basically uh, went as um, an in-house developer. So one of the large South African insurance companies, they were struggling to get mainframe programmers. So they basically said you could come on a course for three months. They would teach you. And if you passed, then then they'd give you a job. If you didn't, then, you know, good luck and Thank well done. Thank you very much. Yes. Oh. Um, so what they also didn't tell you was the course was in Afrikaans. And whilst I come from South Africa, my parents are British, so I'm an English South African person. So I could write the tests in English, but yeah, the, the course was in Afrikaans, which is, is quite a challenge. But obviously I passed, so I had a job um, and, and did that in South Africa. I got a bit bored programming because you sort of sit in a dark room when you're doing mainframe programming, doing hexadecimal dumps, and it all sounds very technical. 
So um, I moved into the people side because that is where, where I really do find um, find satisfaction. So was then looking at doing program management and uh, moved into a different company doing disaster recovery. And that was, we, we, we first had a very male orientated mm. um, and gentlemen of a certain age because uh, they were all consultants and most of them were expats. So that was an interesting one doing doing that okay. um, and then decided when, when I had a breakup on a personal level if I was going to start over I may as well start over so here the UK. so move to the UK Wonderful. Oh. and we'll touch on that in a minute because mm. you've been at Lloyd's Banking Group for a long time yeah started um, off as a contractor and then went perm so yeah, yes so like I said how it works um, we're going to run through a few questions and it's, it's going to be good to sort of bounce off each other type thing and um, Michelle uh, you've been at NatWest, RBS, and even, even Barclays for a touch. It was um, seven years at Barclays, yeah. In the early days, um, so you've been, you've both been in sort of banking and uh, for, for for forever, because <laughs> it's again you're 14 years at Lloyd Banking Group, and ah, but before that you're at Monster. I was at Monster, um, yes. And that was the that's Monsters, the recruiting, the online recruitment. Yeah, yes. that's it. That's it. Michelle, I'm going to start with you. What was your first job? It was um, a work experience for British Gas. Um, and this was working in uh, like a telephony bureau for customers, like ringing up about their meter readings or they've got a gas leak or something like that. And it was very much on a on an inquiry centre. So it was headset, picking up the phone and... Yeah. In, in a call centre type In a very early call centre. Okay. Yeah. Ah. And um, was that straight from school? Um, so I finished school in Germany. It was um, forces school, British forces school, um, just at the same time my dad came out of the army. And when I came back to the UK, I, I enrolled in, in college just to see like what kind of things I wanted to do. And I was, in a, and we'll talk about capriciousness and, and being, uh, being in a state of flux and not knowing what I want to do because it was like, you know, some going on in my head at the time. Um, but I did everything. I, I learned how to weld. I learned how to make jewellery. I learned how to... Um, oh, oh, there was some, a bit of computing going mm. on. And, and so I was I was into everything because I didn't know where I was and what, you know, what, what I was in. As I would say, because um, believe it or not, we're sort of a similar age. Um, <laughs> I'm a couple of years younger. But it's like understanding which way is up and what you want to do. And I've come across this with a whole bunch of people I've interviewed. It's that, you know, there is no map laid out. This is what I'm going to do. And that's how I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. It's it's about, you know, actually, I might try that. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to do something else. And if that doesn't work, I'll try something else. And then we've all been there. And I'll, I'll let you into a wee secret what I, what I did uh, for my first job. I've not revealed it yet. Yeah, in, so, in uh, so a little bit of like not knowing where I, what I'm doing, uh, where my head is at, massive um, turmoil in personal life thinking. I'm, you know, no longer got the the sanctuary or the comfort of an army life. Straight into East Manchester, um, going to college, people of all sorts of shapes, sizes, and everything. And it was just uh, my identity was was gone. I didn't understand uh, why I was so flighty, um, why I couldn't focus, why I couldn't concentrate, and this sort of stuff. Um, but it'll all like fit into place later. Okay, and Alison, you you 
did the whole education thing in, and um, for three years. Uh, I did the whole education thing for <clears> three years and and got the piece of paper and got the piece of paper. Yes, although people now ask, did you just get it out the vending machine? Because I don't think the South African <laughs> pieces of paper count as much as uh, oh, as they know. used to. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, I don't know. And and for the first job, what what did you end up? Um, starting to do. Well, you, you come out of university thinking, oh, everyone's going to want me, right? I've got my qualification, so there's going to be a massive demand. And you send off your, your CV to everybody saying, I've not done anything, but here's my degree. And, and you get radio silence from, from a lot of people because they want experience. But mm-hmm. I think perseverance and continuing to just send that out. So my first job, whilst I was uh, sort of trying to figure out again where, where I'm going to go permanently, was actually doing data entry and, and account reconciliation. So it was getting all the invoices for a company and then putting them in and trying to reconcile the payments with with the receipts and all of those things. Um, and the books were a bit of a mess. So it, it was a big challenge to, to try and get oh. them sorted. Fortunately, that was only a couple of months. And then one of my requests out to companies came back and said, yes, would you like to do this, uh, this in-house assembler course? So it was a, a short-lived data entry job. Fantastic. I know a little bit about accounting stroke data entry. Double entry bookkeeping. Yes. I um, had to do that when I was temping, trying to get my find my way in the world. And it's something I, I got, it was all right. It was easy for me to do it. But it was still manual rather than on a computer. It was literally double entry bookkeeping. I was like, yeah, I can do this. But again, it's just something, as I said, you sort of find your feet in what you want to do. So talking of finding your feet, and I'm going to start with you. Um, again, um, Alison, the world of IT and cybersecurity. Um, now, as we said earlier, you've been doing the program management and change management thing, uh, and I'm, 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 I'm assuming or guessing that that also involves a lot of the security stuff as well. Um, the cybersecurity bit came later, so I don't have any formal qualifications in cybersecurity, and I think that's quite a, a key thing. Is you you can learn on the job, you mm-hmm. can apply. Don't don't be put off by um, thinking you have to tick all the boxes and have have learned everything. Um, so I'd been with the bank for a while and was looking for a, an interesting job change within the bank, um, and uh, the, the sort of cybersecurity came up, and and uh, I applied for that and was successful in doing that, and that was sort of 2017 odd. Um, yeah. And then I've been doing various roles for, for cybersecurity. So I looked at doing some private cloud, uh, working with our private cloud vendor, doing a, a little bit on um, engagement. So how we can engage, um, the, the, well, how people engage with us within cybersecurity. Because a lot of people sort of see you as a, a dark art and I don't quite know how I talk to you or, or you know, I don't understand your language. So did a bit around that. Um, and I'm now doing uh, DigiCert, so digital certificates. Yep, absolutely. And, yeah. uh, well, and um, you coming from 100 years, no, I mean, it's only <laughs> 20 years. I'm only kidding, Michelle. Um, how, you know, what was the, the, the trigger for you? Because as you said earlier, it was like, oh, what do I do? Um, you know, what's going to satisfy your, those, you know, thought processes about how do you get to get to where you are now? Yeah. So I think I, I matured very slowly. So still flighty at around 25 uh, and then went to and, and then decided that I actually should do something. So I went to further education in Bolton. Uh, I think it was called Bolton Institute of Higher Education at the time. It's now a university, but it wasn't when <laughs> I was there. Uh, and I got an HNC in computing, which mm-hmm. started me on the on the right road. Um, but that was when I was working with British Gas. So I, I, I went from that telephone bureau 
um, and very slowly matured. Because at the time, you are surrounded by people who who don't necessarily have much of a career um, uh, path and just uh, it's just a job to them. Yeah. There's no there's no passion and no career. And I just knew that was something different. This was not for me. So I went into uh, the IT side of things at British Gas, and they supported the um, the day release at, uh, at Bolton. Um, came out of that, and then um, was very much like you as a COBOL programmer. Um, yeah, it was, uh, and then I realised actually I'm not a massive, really good uh, COBOL programmer. But what I can do is the COBOL programmers around me that um, that kind of um, need a bit more support or, or, or don't really fit in with a corporate um, organisation. Um, I was really good at helping them and supporting them at a very early, early mm. age. So when I went to Barclays, I went. Uh, it was it was my first managerial job in um, in a design assurance type of role, um, and then moved to NatWest, RBS NatWest. And in 2015, there was an opportunity in IT security, as it was then, and I just thought that's one of the things I haven't tried. Ah, so it sort of leads me on, and this is about the interviewing and the interview stage, and you know you're both lovely ladies and. We all know that the, the world of IT is dominated by middle-aged men. And I've said it a hundred times already with pot bellies, bad T-shirts and, you know, ponytails. And, you know, you guys have broken through the glass ceiling to become leaders in, in, in what you do. And, you know, can Alison, can you recall that time when it was like, well, why is she applying for this job type thing? Did it happen? And, and, and how did you combat that? I think it's interesting because the first job that I sort of applied for, other than you know the, the assembler job, um, was actually, as I said, the, the disaster recovery business continuity firm, and that was very much male orientated. Um, but interestingly, we had the South Africans who are very much, if they're an Afrikaans South African, they can tend to be quite sexist and going, well, yes, you are get me the cup of tea and, you know, have you done the diary kind of thing. But we had the expats who'd come over who were very much open to if you've got the skills and yeah. you've got the enthusiasm, then that's what we want. So they were really keen to hire me, but it did ruffle a few feathers amongst the, the older, more traditional so, South Africans. That's, that's interesting. So culturally, um, with the expats, it wasn't too bad, but, um, you know, within the South African uh, community, it was like... You, was it really, you know, woman, know your place type thing? I, I Again, I'm just... Yeah, we, we hadn't... I mean, I'm I'm 52, so not a little bit behind you, but not, not ahead of the apartheid bit. So we were still going through apartheid yeah, yeah. where we had very much, you know, a, a girls-only school, generally whites-only um, where I was going through. So university was my first sort of experience of, wow, there's a whole lot of new people out here. You know, there's, there's opposite genders and there's different, you know, colours and accents and all sorts of things because we were very insular... Um, in our school um so th- there was there wasn't quite that positive mm. affirm- affirmative action or what, whatever i can't remember what the exact words are where actually it was well we do want to embrace diversity it was very much a traditional point oh, at that I, time I yeah. so it was it was later as you sort of moved on your career nelson mandela got released that then there was black economic empowerment and people were actively trying to create more diversity in the workplace yeah, so it was a really interesting time to be to be going through yeah and you know when i was uh interviewing warren small i think um in the last last episode um he i i, I said to him um 
But because of um, the change that was going on in South Africa at the time with Nelson Mandela being released, he goes, was it easier for him as a, as a black guy to, you know, come up through the ranks? And his answer was no. Really? <laughs> yeah, because unless you knew somebody, um, it, you know, it was still a bit of a struggle. And, you know, if, if your parents worked at a certain place, that was okay. Um, if, um, if you didn't know anybody within a certain business, it was still very difficult to get in. Um, but Interesting. Again, I, I, I also remember a part, I remember the whole thing, and I just thought, okay, that, that's interesting. And, you know, I, I look at South Africa now, uh, and it's just like every, everywhere else. I've never visited, but my sister has, and she said it's an amazing place, it's a beautiful place. I'm like, yeah, great, fantastic. Uh, and it's interesting that what you've just said about um, sort of opportunity for a female yeah. um, coming up, uh, as well as what Warren was saying, it, it, it makes makes a bit more sense. Um, okay, moving on. The exciting thing is you guys are now sort of leaders in your workplaces. Um, Michelle, you're at NatWest. Alison, you're at Lloyd's Banking Group. Um and you've been there for quite some time, the barriers. So you've, you've seen, have you seen that change and that diverse change and um, what it's meant for more women coming through, people of colour, uh, people of uh, whether it be LGBTQ, and we're going to touch on neurodiverse in a second. So, you know, uh, Michelle, we'll start with you. Has there, what have you seen and, and how do you as a leader sort of make sure that that diversity continues? Yeah. So the whole industry from, from actually... I think it was 1991 when I did the my HNC. So we are talking 32 years. 32 years that I've been in IT, and so um, 1991 I was drunk. So <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole of the 90s I was drunk. So. <laughs> that was your cloudy era. Um, but, but yeah, so I would say the whole industry from that point to now has just grown and evolved and uh, become a really diverse. Um, workplace uh, and it is such a positive um, industry to be in because of that I remember the old dinosaurs that we worked for that the the amount of unconscious bias that was there and maybe a little bit of conscious bias you know you never really know um, was just prevalent and the it was a combination of lads clubs it was the um, the sexism or the misogynism and things like that that was there in the whole industry and probably not not solely with uh, IT either. Um, but there has been a kind of revolution in the last, I would say, eight, ten years, where it, it's really important to educate uh, diversity and inclusion and actually talk about... Because if you talk about the corporate numbers and the commercial element of things, there's there's even that thing about the opportunities that you're missing if you are not including these type of people, whether it's as customers, whether it's as actually as vendors, suppliers, staff, people, um, you're just, you, you know, you're missing out on so much. Um, Indeed. And, and Alison? Yeah, I would agree with that because if, if you look, we're, we're both in service, it's banking. So your customer is, is basically, you know, your your 
be all and end all. You need to make sure you, you don't lose your customers or you don't have a, a, a company. And our customers are very diverse. So I think by bringing in a whole lot of diverse people into your workforce, you are getting to understand what do your customers need? How do they react? You, you, you get such a different insight into things. Mm-hmm. Um, and just bringing in that fresh approach, even if they don't have IT skills, you know, we can train the skills. If you've got the right the right attitude and the right behaviors, we can teach you the skills. Um, so I think in the past it's always been, well, have you passed this, this, this? What are your computer, you know, degrees and skills? What certifications have you got? Now it's more, how do you approach things? Do you like problem solving? Are you able to collaborate, work together? Mm-hmm. That that is very much. It's more about your values and behaviors and your culture than what did you get and can you analyze a hexadecimal dump? No, understood. And I, I mean, I, I interviewed uh, a lady called Elizabeth Huffman who's a director of cybersecurity for KPMG um, and uh, on the services side. And KPMG have gone out of their way to hire, if you like, those those people of, those diverse people um, to make it a, 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 what's the word I would use? Not a plan per se, but to make it, make sure they as an institution do exactly that, um, have the mixture of people because... Um, and I said it in a few episodes that when you in our industry, when you sit in a room and you're the only female or person of colour and you've got again, it's no slight. It's not in a bitch fest again. You know, you see all these guys sitting around the table and they're all the same and they have the same ideas. And you think to yourself, do you know what, if someone else was in or someone and it's you're right, it's starting to happen. Ten years. Um, I, yeah, I'd, I'd probably probably say i don't know what we're in now from about 2017 onwards oh, okay. i i believe it started to change and um you know i, I saw it in sport um you saw it in the sort of me too movement when was that that was probably 17 18 2017 2018 mm-hmm. and it was a wake-up call and and you see it on tv you see it in sport especially now that women's say women's football um the world cup's just about to start in australia and, um, you know, I'm going to put my hands up. And I used to giggle at ladies football um, because it was like, well, it's not the same. But it doesn't matter. It's not the same because they're doing the same thing. And a dinosaur like myself had to rethink how he changed because I've got three daughters. And they go, Dad, you can't say that. And I was like, well, it is the same, but it's not the same. And you try and put up an argument uh, that, you know, women's football is different to men's football. Yes, it is. But they're doing the same thing. It's the same, same sort of skill set. Uh, and, and you sort of think to yourself, well, actually, I still can't do that as a, as a male, but these women can do. Mm-hmm. And that, that's interesting because I don't do football. I mean, South African, we do rugby and cricket, right? <laughs> However, I watched the women's football. Uh, hang on, South Africa's still the world champions, right? <laughs> <laughs> I believe so. Yeah, four years ago, they, yeah, they beat England. So. Yeah, well, I, I've... Dual citizenship, right? So I can choose which uh, <laughs> which side the, I'm presenting. Okay. Flip on popularity. Exactly. <laughs> yes, who is winning? But but seriously, the women's football. I watched that, and it was incredibly moving. Whereas the men's football, I still think they can be a little bit prima donnery, and it doesn't mm-hmm. seem as collaborative. Yep. The the lionesses went out there, and it was it was enough to bring tears to your eyes because they honestly worked together as a team, and I think that was that was the amazing thing for me is it felt different to what they might be doing the same thing and yeah. kicking a ball but it felt different mm. and it felt more inclusive. And you know what? They actually won something. We did. <laughs> um, you know, we won the European Cup and it's something that's, uh, well, no English men's team has achieved. 
anything we did was 1966. I wasn't born. Sorry, Michelle. Um, and uh, we won the World Cup. <laughs> I'm not having a go. She's going to beat me up later. I'm sorry. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be back after these words. Sea Vision International is a global event and advisory firm dedicated to convening leading visionaries in an exclusive environment for peer-to-peer collaboration. Our programs highlight critical business challenges and deliver the best available applied sciences aimed to change the world. Your vision is our mission. Let us help you build your company's future today, not tomorrow. And welcome back uh, to my next episode of uh, Cyberglass Ceiling. And with me, I have Michelle Proctor, who works at NatWest Bank. And I have Alison Bailey, who's at Lloyd's Banking Group. And we're here today to have a, uh, a good guess about um, how they've come up through the ranks to be leaders in their, in their fields uh, for their companies. And uh, banking is what we're all in. So we shall carry on. But now we're going to touch on something called neurodiversity. Um, and in my opening statements, I talk about people who are different and um you know growing up we all know those people or that that person um that was slightly different from everybody else and i remember me growing up thinking leave them alone i went to a, i went to a boy old boys school and it was a bit like borstal um and if you were different you know it was like a light was shone upon you like that and so um i was never bullied and i was never a bully and when I saw things like that happening, I'd absolutely put a stop to it because I could. Um, and some people couldn't. So I know, Michelle, that there's something that's close to your heart about around neurodiversity. And in more episodes that I will do, I want to touch on it you know, more and more because um, to do the job we do, um, you've got to have something about you. But also the people we work with um, have something about them. And we're not talking hyper-intelligence, but you've got to have some sort of intelligence to do what we do. Um, so, you know, talk to me about not just yourself, but um, what you did and were recognised for that made you one of the leaders in your organisation. Mm. Yeah, and I think I, I, we mentioned it on the very first time we ever we, we spoke that one of my very first interviews for a managerial position, I was um, I was brought into the room afterwards and told by my boss at the time that I had um, been successful in it but not down to n- normal merit they had selected me uh, because the particular team was very broken they had a lot of um, uh, analysts and, and people technology people that were struggling working in a big corporation and um they felt that I had a very softly, softly approach and high empathy. And that was the thing that got me the job. And I remember thinking that that wasn't really much of a compliment to me. Um, although, you know, that I, I, you know, I really get the people and I, I am very high empathy for, for people of differences. Um, but it was not getting it through normal merit that really stuck in, in, in with me for years, thinking mm-hmm. that I wasn't, I still wasn't good enough to be a manager, but I was only, I'd slipped through the net somehow. 
Um, and I think you, you talked, you, you said something instantly saying like, it's still, you know, it might be not what they've recognised, yeah. but you still have something, something behaviourally that actually nailed that job. Absolutely. And I've nailed that job ever since. And I've always been, um, my most recent one, so seven years ago, I was pulled into the cryptography team at the time because they were another quite broken team with um, no collaboration, no no re- real team gelling. Um, uh, customer service was absolutely down the pan. And um, I was... Uh, I was promoted into that role to uh, wrap my arms around it and and um, and I, it and fix it and and it, it came naturally to me being a people person being a high empathy um, understanding that especially in our industry there are an awful lot of people that are neurodiverse um, I can manage them empathetically and support them through some of the more uh, difficult bits of corporate working in a corporate organisation. Anything else? No, it's, it's fine. Uh, yeah. um, so, okay. Alison. What, what I find fascinating about, what I find fascinating about that is you took it as a negative when they said, well, you didn't get it on merit, but actually they were singling out for, for what is a really strong and really unique trait that you've That's got. That's what I said. Yeah, you did. And <laughs> but, it, and that to me is, well, you, you you know, you won it on that. How many people can compete on that? Many can compete on merit, but very few will have that, that you, high yeah. level empathy. You both say that, but it was the way it was delivered mm. yeah. from a male, um, middle-aged white male in yeah. that organisation that had probably had it really easy being in the boys' club and going up through the ranks themselves of ticking all the boxes of being popular of of cracking the whip being the high paced delivery managers which was what was expected um not realizing that that's not the way that all teams can be managed mm. um but yeah so it was the way it was delivered that well if it had been my i'm paraphrasing obviously but if it had been my choice you wouldn't have got it but it seems that we need somebody with uh, high empathy to deliver that so yeah and and then you you built the success on that haven't you and and you know doing this podcast and um one of the things i've always wanted to try and recognize is that no matter who you are a female person of color neurodiverse lgbtq you can still rise up and and, mm-hmm. and uh, achieve something and it's just giving that someone a pathway to understand that goes actually yeah i've recognized that i've got a certain condition but i can still have a a, a, a decent job to to you know go up through the ranks if need be um and if there's more businesses whether they be high corporates whether it be banking insurance or whatever recognize the fact that you've got neurodiverse people in your organization and you can do stuff about it um and again Alison you probably come across those those um individuals that you can recognize that actually they've got a mass fantastic brain um, but they're not going to be part of the boys' club um, because it's not the way they're built. It's not where they're recognised. Yeah, and and that's the key thing. We've actually got um, training that that we can you know sign up for at Lloyd's to actually say how how can we help neurodiverse people. Um, you, it was amazing. I actually went on some of this training, and a lot of the people were going, "Oh, we were told we were stupid. We were told you know we were thick." Um, and now that we've actually grown up and mm. we're, we're, you know, finding out a bit more about ourselves, we're finding out we do have, you know, something on the spectrum and that we're not stupid, we're not thick, we just need to have a different way of communicating. 
Um, so we, we've got uh, colleagues who, who struggle reading because they're dyslexic. Mm-hmm. But they're brilliant. Yeah. So mm-hmm. don't make them read. Give them a speech thing that will read it for them so they can hear because they're perfectly good at hearing. You know, Find out what works for that person to give them the support because if you keep doing the same thing over and over, you're going to get the same results. By embracing all of these things that, that other people have got that your traditional boys club or whatever you want to call it don't have, that's where you get the opportunities. But we do need to look at how we can help and, and how we can make them feel included because the normal stuff that we've been used to doing for many years doesn't work yeah indeed and it's inclusion and i don't know michelle i might put you on the spot a little bit here uh, as an example of um as i'm going to say now west um, and how they've sort of embraced that uh, neurodiversity within the business can you is there a yeah definitely um we everybody um in our industry we have um regular regulatory reading and, re- and viewing um this is the stuff that every qu- every quarter you have to complete all your learnings. And learnings historically has all been about maybe fraud or um, health and safety. Uh, but you see more and more of these modules coming out that are about recognising mm. the differencing in people and um, choose, choosing to challenge. So this is about in an environment... Uh, we're in a very safe environment, but I'm, I'm talking about in an, in a normal working environment. If we um, if we saw something that didn't feel right, um, didn't was just um, micro behaviours, negative micro behaviours, and like that that we're being encouraged to choose a challenge. You know, whether you do it there, direct and confrontational, or whether you take them to one side, whether you delegate to a manager or whatever. Like that. It's it's. It's the it's a much more recent way of actually recognizing um, micro behaviors mm, and mm. giving people the, the empowerment to actually do something about it without feeling that uh, you know. Totally understand, and you know, I've like I said I've I've been uh, in cybersecurity for about I don't know twelve thirteen years, but I've been in IT, you know, in IT sales because I'm a sales guy, believe it or not. But <laughs> I've been in IT sales for about twenty odd years. And I remember when I started off, you had these, um, excuse my French, these Bobby bullshitters that had come along and they'd be going, rah, 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 I'm this, I'm that, I'm great. And you look at them and you think, I, I used to look at them and think you were an absolute tool. Excuse my French, <laughs> but they were an absolute tool because um, to, to run a successful business, to be in a successful team, it's not about you as an individual. It's about how you collaborate with the rest of the people around you. And um, it, it's funny because I've seen these these people let's just call them that um think they're call them charlie big balls or whatever you want to call it fail because all they're concerned about is them and then when they've you know there's someone in the organization that may be slightly neurodiverse you know they get absolutely crucified by these individuals and it's like no not having it and again it could be a boss it could be a manager it could be uh, the you know the person that originally gave you the job uh, and now he's like absolutely coming down on you like a ton of bricks. And you think to yourself, that's not right. And so culture has changed. I hope it's changed anyway, um, where we as in, we as individuals and we as people recognize that people are different. And that this is one of the whole reasons I do what I do, to make sure that people are aware that, yes, people are different and they bring different skill sets. Because if they don't, you know, the world would be a really sad place. 
But it's been a long time coming. So I, there are probably statistics to say that in our industry, in computing industry, there is probably the highest level uh, numbers of people that actually are somewhere on the, on the, on the spectrum. Absolutely. The um, geek streak. Is that what they call it? Yeah, geek streak. <laughs> yeah, because, so it, it kind of feels like we're, we're a bit late because we've, we've recognised that there have been people with uh, neurodiversities for years. And, and more recently, I think the, the understanding around some of them, especially, uh, so something very close to my heart is ADHD in mm. women. Um, we've got it in the family. My niece has um, recently been diagnosed and she's quite severe, um, but there's, there's moderate with um, a lot of us. And, um, and she's quite very hyper-focused. Um, and she, the coping mechanisms that she's had to put in over the years means that she's not been really identified as anything. Like that. Whereas in, I think, um, historically, it was easy to identify in, in boys because mm, of the mm. completely different um, things that they exhibited with ADHD. Yeah. ADHD, autism, oh, yeah. is harder to identify. Well, not harder. It's just boys would get recognised like that it's and then girls. Bizarre coping mechanism that yeah. we put in because we think, at a very early age, you think I'm, I'm different than everybody else and I need to sort of mask it by putting the layers of onions or whatever they call it on uh, just to hide things. And it's not until you meet uh, hit middle age that you actually start thinking or reading an awful lot and thinking, oh, for God's sake, this is just... If not labelling, but if I didn't understand more about this, I would not have felt so isolated mm -hmm. or felt that I was somehow uh, deficient or whatever in, in something because I was not as normal as everybody else. No. Um, so, and I think we're, we're going to see more of this. I think we are actually going to be seeing more because it's, it's, it's another revolution of, um, you know, of the, the gender revolution and the neurodiversity revolution is coming. And, and it's a good thing because... It goes back to what we've said about the opportunities that we're missing with um, the perspective from different people is, um, is, is not to be underestimated. No, again, I understand. We move on. Now, we live in a world where... You guys are leaders in what you do, and we're going to touch on cyber cybersecurity. And um, one of the questions I like to ask is that um, in banking, um, you, you can't get more um, scary um, when you're, you know, in charge of um, millions, if not trillions, going through your um, systems um, in in regards to people transact every day. Um, and with all the threats out there and the threat landscape, a couple of things that sort of stand out that keep you awake at night, what would that be? I'm going to start with Alison. Well, surprisingly, cybersecurity doesn't keep me awake at night. Um, I think in, in Lloyd's, we're, we're very good at what we do. Um, mm -hmm. So it doesn't really keep me awake. The, the things that I would be concerned about when I am awake, rather than keeping me awake, I think the um, quantum computing, that's, we, we haven't seen anywhere near where it's going to end up going. Uh -huh. um, all the sort of bards and chat GPT, where you're going to sit there and go, you know, we've already seen hackers have made a, a dark web copy of it. And they're using that to improve phishing emails. So you're no longer going to have your bad spelling mistakes and grammar saying, you know, well done, you've got some great uncle who's died and left you some load yep. of money back and wherever. Please click this link. Exactly. So I, th I think um, 
the not knowing what we don't know is is that's the bit to worry about because I think your your threat actors are moving very quickly. So you think AI's got a lot to still in its infancy? It's, it, it may come up and um, be a bit more challenging. I think personally, I think we're sitting looking at them and there's a meeting going on, I think, in America, isn't there, where they're talking about how they're going to regulate it and all of um, the, you know, the, the com- countries are getting together. Whilst we're sitting talking about it, um, your threat actors and your hackers are getting on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, so, yeah, it's a, a slight concern when you start looking at um, how we can use it for good or we can use it for bad. And the people using it for bad are generally a, a bit faster off the mark than the people using it for good. So it's, it's always trying to play and catch up. Play and catch up, yeah. Indeed. Um, <laughs> just before I ask you, Michelle, I went to see Mission Impossible at the weekend. Oh, yeah. And um, it's all about AI, believe it or not. Interesting. I was like, okay, car chases, car chases. Hang on, 60-year-old Tom running like, 500 meters without taking a break and i'm like i can't even do that and um yeah more car chases motorbikes train and then there's this machine that's going to take over the world without anyway i'll give him too much away now (laughs) honestly do we not need to go and see it now um no because it's only part one there's two parts to it so the second part is probably in a couple of years do you think oh i've forgotten the first part and i have to go really see it again and you know double Mm. the income of mission impossible sorry I don't get back to it. Sorry. What keeps you awake at night, Michelle? So AI definitely is in there, but I think that you've already covered that. So the other thing is, is around about um, protecting customers' identities and, and, um, and that includes authenticating, you know, our, uh, customers out there, the, 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 the eye watering number of, um, of fraud that the banks actually pay back every year, because I think we all know that the industry does give back to the customers when they've been um, they've been had their money stolen through fraudulent means. Um, it's billions and billions and billions. In fact, didn't when we had the presentation from Salt Group, you came up with our two members. Maybe you can insert them there. <laughs> um, but that it, it it doesn't keep me up at night. Um, I am able to switch off very easily, and it doesn't need a pina colada either. Um, but it is the thing that you 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 mentioned it earlier that they are our bread and butter. Customers are our mm. bread and butter. We need to protect them. Um, customer identity management is the next big thing we need to. I know a bit of software that can deal with that. Oh yeah, do you really? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a lovely segue into a sales no, pitch. We're, for we're you. not doing that. No, this is about cyber glass ceiling. Yeah. Not, not about salt group. Anyway, um, no, and, and I understand that. And. Um, it leads me on to my, my next question, which is uh, is around practical cybersecurity advice you would give to friends or family. I'm going to go to Michelle. Uh, and, uh, yeah, practical advice. We're at home and we've got our own laptops and we've got our phones and whatever. Um, what not to do? I know we touched on it about don't click that link, but, you know. Bloody just stolen my thunder. So it was, yeah, it's like don't click on anything. Um but I would say, and it is, and it's something not just for this. It's a fact checking. I, we, we, I think you're going to talk about our uh, branding in a bit. But I'm a fact checking twit. Um, so, and I and I can annoy everybody by when you see something being posted on social media, 
instantly I'll be going, is that actually true? And annoying people by saying, like, I don't think, and, and, and putting the reference link there to, to it. Um, and so that's so my thing to all my, my friends and, and, and family is like, just check the facts before you send it on or you click on something or you use, you use that as now your own fact. That's me. Okay. Alison? So I've got two that, that I think are pretty key. Uh, passwords. So the number of people who go, oh, well, I can't remember passwords. So I'll just use the same one everywhere. I mean, you know. And write it down. Yeah. yeah, or put it in their phone and then, you know, not not put a, a password on the phone so that everybody can just access it. So, yeah, maybe a, a password manager is um, a good thing. And then one that um, a number of people don't like doing, it's around currency. So make sure you've got the latest versions because the number of vulnerabilities that, you know, you haven't patched if you you sort of living on really old software mm-hmm. um it's very easy for people to come in and, and hack you through that so i think those apply both personally as well as professionally currency is a big one okay that's a new one as well but um no, totally understood um yeah don't yeah so don't click on links verify everything <laughs> fake news and, and uh, yeah <laughs> it is, it's fake news and, and yeah like i said even with ai and 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 stuff like that. I think who's the the guy? Ah, oh, this will just. Get, no, 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 I can't remember. Martin Lewis. Yeah, yeah. There was a a, a fake AI, was it? Or, or I can't remember what it was. It was a it was a fake him. A deep fake. Deep fake. There you go. Thank you. Mm-hmm. A deep fake of Martin Lewis talking about do this, do that, and do the other. Didn't they have and a deep fake Putin as well that um, someone took over Russian broadcasting? Or was that fake news? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Don't know. But these, <laughs> are, the, these are all the, again, these are all the challenges we're facing. It's about, okay, hang on a minute. You know, what's real, what's not real? And, you know, simple, uh, everyday things. You get an email. I mean, at the moment my sister's been, her email address has been hacked uh, and you've got some guy called Abdul. I'm coming for you, Abdul, when I find you. Um, case, oh, check out these photos, check out these photos. And I'm like, hang on a minute. And I know I know it's fake, and I have to tell my sister, sis, this is going out, tell your friends, do not click on anything, da-da-da-da-da. And when I find this Abdul character, I'm going to kick his ass, but that's another, another story for another time. <laughs> Now, this is a, a quite an important one because uh, we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back in time. Um, I'm looking at you, Alison, for a second. I'm thinking back uh, to the future, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so your 20-year-old self. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self um, who somebody wanted to come into the industry we're in now um, in regards to um, what they should do, what they could need to learn or if you go back to when you were 20 years old and the career you've had now um, what would you say to yourself that's a slightly difficult one because when I was 20 I actually was really fortunate I had a family that went you can do anything I mean I grew up with four brothers being the only girl and it was never a oh well you need to do the cooking you need to sew the (laughs) buttons on it was always a you know you're one of five get on with it 
Um, so I never had it in my head that I couldn't do anything. And that's why even when I went for interviews in a predominantly male-orientated environment, it never occurred to me I couldn't do it because that's what I grew up with is, is a whole lot of you know males in the house. Um, so I think what do something you're passionate about. So don't do something because you want to earn money because you'll, you'll end up potentially earning money and then going on board. What do you want to do? So your, your example was really interesting where you tried a whole lot of different things. You know, try different things. Be brave. Don't sit there and think, well, just because I've gone and learned this, I have to do this for the rest of my life. I think that's really different where we are um, in the sort of 2023s versus back to the traditional. You know, you, you joined up, you stayed with the company, they gave you the watch when you left and, and that was it. Mm-hmm. People are changing careers multiple times. I don't even know how many times. And not just changing jobs, but changing careers. Yeah. So be brave and just go out there and try it. Find what you're passionate about. Even though you've been with the bank for a number of years, you've had different... Um, different op- roles, different, different, roles different areas, yep. Yeah. And I've done that even from my assembler programming, going into business continuity and, and disaster recovery. And then, you know, doing, I did Lotus Notes, not not COBOL, but yeah, Assembler and then Lotus Notes. And then coming and doing doing Siebel Consultancy and, you know, working for Monster. It's it's try different things and, and believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't sit there. And I think the, a, a challenge we have as women um, is we, we're very much, um, and this is a buzzword at the moment, the imposter syndrome. So we all sit there and think, oh, I can't do that. I can't apply for that job because I'll I'll be an imposter. I can't do 100% of the job. Um, and it was interesting because when I worked at Monster, I was looking after their, um, their customer, their CRM system, Siebel uh, uh, at the time, and they wanted me to go and head up their business information, um, uh, business intelligence, so go and do their data warehouse and all of that. I said, I can't do that. I know nothing about that. And they went, you can. You've got mm. the skills. You have transferable skills that you can use we can teach you how to do business, you know, data warehouse, all those things that um, I then had SMEs who did. I didn't need to do it. But you've got transferable skills and believe in yourself when others actually mm, sit yeah. there and go, yeah, you can do it. You can. So you use the posh word if it's imposter thing. I say fake it until you make it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same sort of thing. 20-year-old Michelle. 20-year-old Michelle. Um, outside of the airbase. Not looking at the squaddies. No, we, my dad was out of the army by then, so I was very much in Manchester. Um, I would, so I would definitely talk to me, talk, have a serious word about um, feeling guilty for not being um, ready, not being mature, and not being already at university, because it wasn't until I was 25 that I decided to go, um, for not being mature enough to have that that perfect career that everybody was having because you know it's there is just no rush i know that life is too short and you should not put off your camper van uh, you know for another until you retire but i'm talking about actually when you are I'm 20 there. <laughs> you <laughs> damn um but yeah it is about like at 20 you you should be exploring everything you should be and uh, finding out more about yourself and not in, into a rush of anything. And if you are young and, and irrelevant and immature and silly, then let, l- l- just get it out of your system because one mm. day you will. And But but if you don't recognise that it's actually okay to do that, you will end up being have just innate guilt your entire life. And... So go out there, explore, indulge, try different things. Sounds like drugs. <laughs> I can do drugs. No, no, no. <laughs> no. I'm kidding. <laughs> Back to the 90s. Um, uh, but yeah, no, totally understand that. I'm going to have to cut some of this out because it's Definitely. terrible drugs. <laughs> Never took a drug in my life. Um, 
So fun. Now we've come out of the ser- get out of the serious stuff out of the way, but we can talk about a bit of fun. So the jobs we do uh, aren't simple jobs, and it takes a lot of lot of effort and a lot of um, our energy. So wind down downtime. Alison, I'm looking at you. What do we do? I have two horses uh, in the family. Nice. Very nice. And um, they don't suffer fools gladly. If you turn up there and you're in a bad mood, they just walk off and leave you. So it's incredibly grounding that you can just go there. You're, you're out in nature. You switch off. And you basically have to be in the moment and, and work with, with what you've got in front of you. You can't sit there and say, oh, I should have done this and I should have done this because the horses are like, you know, speak to the hoof. I'm not. I'm not hanging around here. Um, I'm off to the grass unless you make it worth my while. So um, they're incredibly rewarding because they mirror back, and I can tell if I'm stressed or something because they're all on edge, going, "Ooh, what? Why? Why is she not? Why is she not comfortable? Where's the tiger? You know, it's going to come and eat us." So yeah, horses and just being out in nature are incredibly rebalancing and re-energizing. So you're an outdoorsy type person. Well, is. I have wellies, yes. I you get you get wet. You look like a drowned rat, but it's wonderful. Okay, Michelle. Um, so I took up about, gosh, it's going to be a long time ago now. Probably fifteen years ago, I took up pottery. Um, there is something about art therapy that I think is um, very, very uh, important to people. Um, we've got a little bit of an artistic streak in the family, but being working class family, there was never any encouragement to to go down the um, arts route. It was always like, go out and find yourself a bloody job so you contribute to... to <laughs> put the, money in pot. Uh, to put money in pot, like, uh, what was that? Um, bread. Bread, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, so it, there was, the, the encouragement was to just go out and, and, and um, do your schooling, go to, um, go to work. So I never did art, um, but I do do it in my spare time. So um, about it's going to be about 15 years ago, I started um, going to a night class for pottery, and I love it. Um, I've got some horrendous th- pieces, because I'm, I'm not a very good thrower, um, you know, like throwing it in, yeah. on a wheel, rubbish. I haven't got the patience to uh, do a whole load of balls and work you know, and work through them all one by one and then just throw them because they, do, they don't look like a, a vase. Um, but I am a sculptor and I do a lot of slab pots, you know, when you roll things together and cut them and things like that. Um, the ones that are awful are all in the garden. They're all in the garden and I'm just going to let the weather just die, decide whether they live or not. Uh, but the big, better pieces are in the house and some of them I've actually given away as gifts and, and then regretted it instantly because I'm thinking, they were brilliant. <laughs> um, but yeah, so pottery and, and art is, is my, my passion. Ah, your downtime. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's no disco parties and... Um, <laughs> is it, tequila slamming the, the ladies the ladies that do um pottery um they're they are a lovely bunch and there's some wild swimmers in there um because i live in north berwick which is just outside of edinburgh and it's a seaside community and and um uh, without the kiss me quick hats and the arcades um but we've got access to some beautiful bays mm. and even though it is uh, the fourth and they're close to the um north sea um, the wild swimming there is brilliant. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll be coming up soon. Um, I think October when we do that round table. Right, hop on a train and I'll show you. Yeah, yeah. yeah playing quicker. No, oh, from from Edinburgh to North Berwick is about thirty five minutes on a train. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, even better. 
That's 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 a doable <laughs> one. Now it's interesting. You call it wild swimming in South Africa. It's just swimming. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what is wild swimming? <laughs> yeah, you go along the beach and there's you know watch out for the crocodiles and you're like, oh, okay, that's that's wild swimming. <laughs> so yes, Harry. was it was a yeah, new okay. term I had to learn here. What on? Okay, so um, we're we're coming up to the last question. Um, believe it or not, and. Uh, it's about the USP, uh, unique selling point. So this, like I said, this whole podcast, um, I've done God knows how many episodes now. I think I, I couldn't tell you, it's 12, 13 going on. And um, this is about you guys. It's not about where you work, whether it's Lloyd's or NatWest Bank. It's about you guys. And, you know, if I said, or I'm going to say to you, Alison, what is your unique selling point? What makes you you, and what makes what made you that leader within what you do now in the banking world for Lloyd's? So I couldn't actually think of anything unique to me. Okay, let me show. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Because we are all unique, so it's like okay, well, what is my unique selling point? So I went and, and I asked my boss. I said, right, what's my unique selling point? And he said, you get things done with empathy you take people with you. Okay. And, and I think that's the key thing is, yes, I'm, I'm very driven. Yes, I like results and I like making things, you know, work and, and getting to where we want them to go. But I take people with me. And it's interesting because I've then looked back and I've had a number of people in a team, if I've changed roles, they've said, can we come with you? Can we come and work in your new team? Um, and it, it is, it's that empathy, it's that understanding, it's that collaboration um, and bringing the people with you, but still getting things done. Very good. Yeah. Michelle? I was thinking about Life of Brian when they were saying you're all, um, it would, didn't he say like, you're all individual, I'm not, and I'm not. Yeah, We are all unique, but I think I've also got that high empathy thing, but a data-driven high empathy person that um, I have, my confidence comes with facts and figures. <laughs> Um, and I use that of my arguments and my influencing and things like that. But also, uh, yeah, definitely on the high empathy. Okay. Well, um, we come to the end of uh, this series of the podcast or this episode of the podcast. Um, it's a lot longer than my usual podcast, so I'm, I'm going to stretch it out a little bit. And uh, thank you both for joining me um, for, for Alison. And for Michelle. It's been a pleasure. Um, it's been great. Uh, we're we're going to carry on after this. So, sorry, guys. You're going <laughs> to miss out on the fun, uh, everyone that's listening. And, um, no, I really do appreciate it. And uh, thank you for joining me on Cyberglass Ceiling. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Salt Cybersecurity, part of Salt Group, who specialise in providing trust across digital channels by helping major financial institutions verify the identity of their users and authenticating high-value transactions in the UK and globally.